Welcome to Pick 6 Movies, where each season we pick six different movies that fall under one common theme. We give you some insight behind how, when, where, and why each movie was made. And on top of that, at no extra charge, you get a full review of the movie from me, Bo Ransdell, and my co-host, Chad Cooper. This is season number two, episode three, based around the theme, Live from New York in which we look at movies that spun off from the hit television show Saturday Night Live. This time around, we're looking at one of the more bizarre entries into the realm of sketches turned to film, a movie that dares to ask the question, Huh? This time around, it is the head-scratching one-note film from 1994, It's Pat. So, without further ado... Let's turn it over to Chad to try to explain what in the hell is going on here. From the beginning, Saturday Night Live embraced a long-held theatrical tradition of men playing women and women playing men as a comedic device for creating caricatures of public figures satire on social norms, or tackling difficult topics that are best addressed through humor. Saturday Night Live has an incredible list of sketches that included men portraying women to great comedic effect. Dan Aykroyd as Julia Child, Will Ferrell as Janet Reno, Tracy Morgan as Maya Angelou, Martin Short did an incredible Catherine Hepburn, Adam Sandler, Chris Farley, and David Spade created the Gap Girls. The the list goes on and on. But it wasn't always just the men in drag dressing up as women for laughs. Mary Gross played the tone-deaf little rascal Alfalfa. And most recently, Kate McKinnon's cornered the market on current pop culture and political impressions, including Justin Bieber, Jeff Sessions, Rudy Giuliani, and Bob Mueller. Now, moving beyond sketches that focus on having men play women and women play men, Saturday Night Live has a complicated history when it comes to broader LGBT issues. As the culture changed, so did Saturday Night Live, oftentimes holding up a mirror to society to reflect the growing diversity of perspectives within the United States. However, one place that hasn't reflected a growing diversity is in the show's cast. Terry Sweeney, who was on season 11, is the only out gay man to be a member of Saturday Night Live's cast to date. It should be noted that Sweeney played numerous female characters, most notably Joan Rivers and an incredibly memorable Nancy Reagan. Denitra Vance also was part of the season 11 cast, though her sexual orientation never became public knowledge until her death at age 40. She was also the first black female to become a repertory player on the Saturday Night Live cast. And then there's Kate McKinnon, a current Saturday Night Live cast member, who is the second openly LGBT cast member in SNL's on-air run. And that's it. In the 43 seasons of the show, three repertory cast members are identified as LGBT, and only two during their time on the show. Behind the camera, Paula Pell took over the position of head writer when Tina Fey departed Saturday Night Live, making Pell not only the second female head writer, but the first openly LGBT head writer. Pell started her writing career with Saturday Night Live in 1985 and was a producer and writer for Tina Fey's brilliant Saturday Night Live-inspired sitcom 30 Rock. James Anderson, who happens to be Paula Pell's writing partner, is also gay and had a great career writing for Saturday Night Live for almost as long as Pell. 
Chris Kelly, who recently left SNL, was the first openly gay head writer for the show, and presumably there may have been others who would not identify as straight that contributed in the writer's room and in front of the camera as well. But the number of people that are openly LGBT are relatively small compared to the volume of performers and writers that have come and gone throughout the years. Now that doesn't mean that a lack of openly LGBT contributors meant that Saturday Night Live would shy away from addressing topics that relate to human sexuality, gender roles, and changing cultural norms. Commercial parodies took on numerous LGBT topics. Adam Sandler and Chris Farley addressed the stereotypical male fantasy poolside beer party with Schmidt's Gay Beer. Just Friends booty shorts were sold as a product to help straight guys tired of being mistaken for a gay couple to prove they were straight. And there was also an ad for Homicil, a drug for parents dealing with gay kids because, as the tagline put it, it's your problem, not theirs. But not all commercials were as on point. One parody from 1982 called Come On Out America features what appears to be stock footage of a diverse group of people with an upbeat song all about coming out as gay. At the end of the commercial, there's a group of people doing a parody of the Dr. Pepper campaign, I'm a Pepper, changing the tagline, I'm a Pepper, to I'm a Homo. Keep in mind that this commercial parody aired just a few short years after CBS decided to change the name of Bruce Banner to David Banner because Bruce sounded too gayish. I'm not so sure that all of America was really in on the joke that was the Dr. Pepper commercial parody featuring people singing and dancing around about being a, quote, homo. Sexuality and gender identity certainly played a part in original characters on Saturday Night Live throughout the years. Chris Kattan played Mango, who wore tight boy shorts and a bedazzled beret, as a one-named diva capable of ensnaring any man with an intoxicating persona. Rachel Dreck portrayed Nicole, the girl with no gaydar. Dana Carvey introduced Lyle, the effeminate heterosexual, a man who embodied every stereotypical mannerism of a gay man, but who was unabashedly straight. When the state of Maine approved a gay marriage law, Saturday Night Live introduced two gay fishermen from Maine on Weekend Update. And speaking of Weekend Update, Bill Heater gave us Stefan, whose wedding to Anderson Cooper was ruined by Weekend Update anchor Seth Meyers, who ultimately brought Stefan back to Studio AH to openly proclaim their love for one another. But there are some contributions to Saturday Night Live that stand above the rest when it comes to characters that took on gender and sexuality a little more directly. The ambiguously gay duo was created by Robert Smigel as a parody of comic book superheroes from the 1970s and 80s. Stephen Colbert provided the voice of Ace, and Steve Carell voiced Gary as a superhero team that are very close in their relationship and kind of ambiguous to all others. Now, it should be noted that Ace and Gary drive a car that is clearly shaped like a huge penis, and they fight bad guys with signature moves involving putting each other's face into each other's ass. Their shorts have huge bulges in the crotch, and much of the comedy comes from onlookers who are uncomfortable with the duo's actions, who play the entire thing, well, straight. Putting all other Saturday Night Live commercial parodies, sketches, and original characters aside, There's one character that stands out more than any other when it comes to LGBT issues. It's Pat. The character of Pat was created by Julia Sweeney, who joined the cast of Saturday Night Live in 1990 after SNL producer Lorne Michael saw her performing with the Groundlings. Sweeney was born in Spokane, Washington. Her father was an attorney and federal prosecutor. Her mother was a homemaker. Sweeney was raised Irish Catholic and is the oldest of five children. 
After her time on Saturday Night Live, Sweeney wrote and performed three autobiographical monologues. The first, God Said Ha, chronicled a series of family traumas including her brother's fatal diagnosis with leukemia and her own battle with cancer. The second, in a family way, centered on Sweeney's adoption of her daughter from China. And Letting Go of God was the third, where she dove into her Catholic upbringing and a spiritual journey that ultimately led to her becoming an atheist. Most recently, Sweeney has debuted a new show called Older and Wider at Chicago's Second City. Here she discusses the legacy of Pat, which is her most famous character from her time on Saturday Night Live. Now, for those who are not familiar with the sketch, It's Pat, Pat was a character who no one could tell was male or female. Pat typically wore a blue Western-style shirt with beige pants. Pat wore thick black horned-rimmed glasses and had tight, curly, dark hair. Pat was socially awkward, spoke loudly, and ended sentences with this strange, wheezy, whiny, gurgly sound. Other people in the sketches tried to gloss over the awkwardness of Pat, except whenever Pat would bring up the topic of sex, and then they would react with genuine disgust. From everything I've read, the sketch was intended not to make fun of Pat, but was more of a reflection on how gender must adhere to specific male and female guidelines and how society responds when people veer outside of those expected norms. Pat was the source of the jokes, but wasn't really intended to be the butt of the jokes. However, how things are intended, how they're received, and ultimately how they're perceived over time is something that one cannot always control. But let's go back to 1990 when It's Pat was a hugely successful sketch on Saturday Night Live. How successful was it? Well, It's Pat aired 12 sketches from 1990 to 1993. Let's compare that to some of the most famous SNL characters of all time. The Coneheads made 11 appearances. We visited Mr. Robinson's neighborhood nine times. Unfrozen Caveman Lawyer, four times. MacGruber, he was only blown up 10 times. Matt Foley lived down by the river seven times, and at the time of this recording, DeAndre Cole has only asked, what up with that, and even ten times. Pat is remembered as one of the show's most annoying, and yet oddly enough, highly recurring characters on Saturday Night Live. And so it was that Pat was selected to star in what would become one of the worst-reviewed movies of all time. The screenplay was written by Julia Sweeney and Jim Emerson, who was a friend from Sweeney's early days of improv with the Groundlings. Sweeney admitted that in the early days of the character going from the small screen to the big screen that she felt some reluctance towards taking the character of Pat and making it work for the length of a feature film. But the studio and producers being the charmers that they are, the movie pushed forward. And as they progressed, Sweeney delivered a script that she said she really loved. Fox, the studio producing the movie, did not feel the same way, and ultimately Touchstone stepped in to take over. It was revealed that Quentin Tarantino was an uncredited writer on the script as well. How did that happen? Julia Sweeney had a bit role in Pulp Fiction as Raquel, the junkyard owner who is Harvey Keitel's breakfast date. In real life, she had been married to Stephen Hibbert, who played the gimp in the movie Pulp Fiction. And Tarantino apparently had an affection for the character, he said in an interview with Playboy magazine, quote, The androgyny aspect is only a part of Pat's appeal. What I love about the character is that Pat is so fucking obnoxious. To tell the truth, I don't know what Pat is, but I know what I want Pat to be. I want Pat to be a girl. There was only one sketch that Julia Sweeney, the actress who plays Pat, 
did on Saturday Night Live that gave a clue to what Pat is. It was a sketch that Pat did with Harvey Keitel. They're stranded on a desert island and they have sex. And Harvey still doesn't know what Pat is. And the thing is, they kissed in it. And at one point, they were thinking about taking the kiss out of the sketch. But Harvey, being Harvey, demanded that they keep it in. That there's no integrity without the kiss. So that's the first time we've seen Pat in an intimate situation. A smooch. There's a certain way you hold your head. The way you come in for a kiss sitting there watching it, I thought that Pat didn't kiss like a guy. Pat kissed like a girl. End quote. Apparently, Mr. Tarantino is not only a master of real fiction, he dabbles in fan fiction as well. Let's move along. The movie stars a pretty good supporting cast. Dave Foley, most notably from The Kids in the Hall, plays Chris, an equally androgynous individual who is the better half of our film's lead character, Foley was friends with other SNL alumni, including Mike Myers and Mark McKinney, who appeared on both Saturday Night Live and was a member of the Kids in the Hall himself. The movie's villain is played by former SNL cast member Charles Rocket. Rocket was famous for being the first Saturday Night Live cast member to ever say fuck on live TV. Now, reportedly, Rocket had a contemptuous relationship with SNL peers Eddie Murphy and Joe Piscopo, whose rising stars outshined his own. Rocket was married and had one child, and later in his career he worked pretty steadily appearing in movies that included Hocus Pocus, Dances with Wolves, and Dumb and Dumber, often playing the comedic foils. He played Bruce Willis's brother Richard Addison on ABC's comedy drama Moonlighting. He also played the accordion on David Burns' produced B-52's album Mesopotamia. In October of 2005, Rocket was found dead in a field on his Connecticut property with his throat slit. Less than two weeks later, the death was ruled a suicide by the medical examiner and no criminal case was ever opened. His remains were ultimately cremated as well. Yeah, I know. I thought the same thing. Kathy Griffin shows up in It's Pat, playing herself. Likewise, Dean and Jean Ween from the band Ween take on roles as themselves. Kathy Najimy is among the cast as a store clerk. You may remember her as Sister Mary Patrick in the Sister Act movies, and she also provided the voice of Peggy Hill on the animated series King of the Hill. SNL alumni Tim Meadows also shows up, who would later star in his own SNL movie and makes an appearance as a radio station manager. The movie was directed by Adam Bernstein, who at the time had helmed a lot of music videos, most notably for the B-52s. Now, Later in his career, Bernstein worked heavily directing in television for numerous shows, including 30 Rock, Scrubs, and Breaking Bad. Now, on paper, all of this sounds pretty good. Popular Saturday Night Live character, good comedic chops on the actors, soon-to-be-accomplished director, Tarantino ghostwriting part of the screenplay. I mean, what could possibly go wrong? It's Pat the movie opened in only three cities, in 33 theaters, with a total gross of just over $60,000. That's an average of around $1,800 per theater, which was around $260 per day, four showings per day, that's about $65 per screen. At $6 per ticket, that's about 10 people in each theater each time the movie was shown. Due to this, bad reviews, and a lot of other factors, the movie was pulled from release after its opening weekend. A review from Variety magazine said the movie was shockingly unfunny and said that what was once a relatively harmless TV character had now turned into a 
boorish, egotistical creep for the big screen. It's Pat has a 0% freshness rating on Rotten Tomatoes, joining the likes of such dubious films as Jaws the Revenge, Police Academy 4, Citizens on Patrol, and Staying Alive, the sequel to Saturday Night Fever. Jill Soloway is the creator of the television show Transparent, a series that deals directly with transgender characters and the challenges they face in present-day society. Soloway, who identifies as non-binary, called It's Pat a, quote, hateful, hateful, awful thing to do to non-binary people, to create this character that the whole world laughed at openly, end quote. Soloway went on to say, quote, we didn't understand at the time, but looking back at that, what an awful piece of anti-trans propaganda that was handed out for many, many years. In an interview with the Chicago Sun-Times, Sweeney responded to Solway's remarks by saying, Pat didn't feel strange or weird or wrong, and frankly, I've never thought of Pat as being transgender. That character is simply a gender we have yet to figure out. Sweeney added in the interview that none of the jokes were made at Pat's expense, but she could see how today that, quote, what we did is so next door to laughing at the person for not having clear gender characteristics, I can see how it might seem like you're laughing at the person, end quote. With present-day perspective, the question at the heart of it all is whether or not It's Pat is ultimately transphobic. And honestly, I think that's a question better answered by a member of the trans community. In this episode, we're going to take a look at It's Pat as a movie. Did it really deserve to be pulled from theaters after just one week? Is there a chance the movie could actually have gotten worse as social norms have changed over the last 20 years? Are there any hidden Tarantino moments inside the film? Well, there's only one way to find out. Ladies and gentlemen... I mean, boys and... Never mind. Episode 3... It's bad. Uh, welcome to Pick 6 Movies as we continue our season of Live from New York. Uh, this is episode three, where we are exploring the film It's Pat. I'm Chad Cooper. Uh, I'm here with, uh, as always, my co-host, Mr. Bo Ransdell. Hey, how are you? I've been better. I got to be honest. I've I have not looked forward to discussing this movie uh, at all. So let's just. Let's just, you know, dispense with the niceties and let's get into this. Yeah. No no dicking around. Let's just go straight for the uh the feast of poo that is its pad. I had never seen this film until we decided to do this season. Um again, I knew the character Pat being a, a lifelong Saturday Night Live fan. Um and it didn't, as I mentioned in the intro, you know, that this film is, is notoriously bad. It, it ran for a week and it's just, you know, even in present day, it's, it's quite, you know, controversial just in regard to the uh, LGBT issues and just how maybe it's, it's aged over time. But a, a few questions I wanted to ask before we even, you know, jump into the, the, the meat and potatoes of it. Can you think of any film you've ever seen that is worse than this? <laughs> All right, that's a tough question, and let me let me explain why. 
Because some movies are bad in a way that they become entertaining. That there, there's, uh, notably there is a movie called Winter Beast that I dearly love that is an absolute train wreck of a movie, but its incompetence is sort of its charm. The problem, I would argue, with its pet is that there's nothing charming about the movie's failure. It's just awful. I have, have to answer the question. Have I seen worse movies than it's Pat? Probably so, but the wounds from this are so fresh <laughs> that it's it's tough to look past that, right? Like I need, you know, what is the math on this? You you have to give it half as long as you were together. <laughs> uh, to get over a, a, a big emotional trauma. It's easily the, the worst movie we've talked about between these two seasons. And I, I'd be willing to venture it's going to be a while before we are able to say this is the worst movie we've ever done. Because it's Pat is going to hold that crown for a while, I think. I agree with that. So a couple of things I wanted to, again, just get out of the way from the beginning. Is that, you know, in the intro, you know, I talked about the question of whether or not this movie is offensive specifically, you know, to trans people. And the answer is yes. But I just want to go a step further and say that this is offensive to all people. And you and I have known each other a long time. We've seen a lot of good movies and bad movies. And to your point earlier, there is a charm to certain bad films. This movie is absent of that. So anyone listening to this review, the sound of my voice, I cannot begin to tell you how tragically awful this movie is without any accidental redeeming values. It It is unredeemably bad. There is exactly one moment in the film that I kind of like, and it's relative. It, it was the one moment where I thought, huh, that's kind of funny. Dave Foley's all right. <laughs> and the rest of it is wall-to-wall trash. So I have a theory about this movie, bringing up, you know, Dave Foley and, and Julia Sweeney, who I do think in certain roles is a very funny comedian. I think there are a lot of talented people that worked on this film. And I have a theory that this movie is intentionally bad. I think that Julia Sweeney and others were contractually obligated to make this movie and therefore they did, but did it in such a way that it hit all the right notes. It checked all the right boxes to be an it's Pat movie, but they made it so bad because they didn't want to make the movie in the first place. And when delivered, it was, here's the it's Pat movie. And it was everything that was asked for it was just absolute garbage on purpose i mean maybe i don't know you just like to think that somebody somewhere in that chain of command uh, which, as we all know, is the most important word in business. You would think that there would be somebody that was playing catcher in the rye on that. We can't make something this terrible. It's the producers, man. So my question to that is, what is the upside other than, hey, we stuck it to the man who wanted us to make this shitty movie, so we made the shittiest one possible, that is going to potentially derail all of our careers? There is no upside to sticking it to the man. You just stick it to the man, man. <laughs> all right. All right. I'm, I'm willing to go with you there because I'm grasping at straws to figure out how theoretically smart people, like even the director of this movie, has done great stuff. There is no way 
that this group of people who worked on this film collectively could make something that is such a wrong-headed film. This movie is really a set of, of set pieces. I mean, more than any of the other Saturday Night Live movies that, that we've seen so far. I mean, there's there's kind of a plot that we'll, we'll get into in just a moment that helps to stretch this thing out to a whopping 77 minutes. Uh-huh. Let's just go ahead and get this over with as quickly as possible. And I've got a feeling our discussion is going to take longer than the film. So just apologies all around. For, for, for all of this. The movie starts off from inside the vaginal canal of Pat's mother. It is pink and it is a fleshy tube. Other movies that have started with the birth of a character, it's usually, you know, like it goes from black to, to daylight. Not it's Pat. I mean, you're coming out of the vagina. Yeah, well, you know, the movie is bold. It's letting you know right off, right off the bat that you're in for art. You know, <laughs> that you're not safe. This is not going to be a comfortable sit for anyone. So for those people in the theater, seeing a giant vagina hole on the screen, the film in its own way was saying, if you're not comfortable with the first 10 frames of this film, you turn around and get the hell out of the theater. Speaking of the audience for this movie, who are these people? Whoever... <laughs> Whoever saw any one of the It's Pat sketches, which are all one joke, told over and over again. And I, I think it's wrongheaded to decide, hey, that sketch, regardless of the content, regardless of how politically insensitive the, the character is. And we'll, I'm sure, get into that. But the fact that you are stretching one gag to eight, nine minutes of sketch comedy time already feels strange. And so for this movie, it is 77 minutes and no one bothers to come up with another joke. I think as far as like who saw this movie, probably give me a half hour on the internet. I can go track down the 200 people that saw it in the theater. <laughs> they're, they're, they actually have their own like Discord server where they just jump in time to time. They're like, remember when we saw that fucking movie? It's Pat. <laughs> Yeah, like they get Willy Wonka style golden tickets to commemorate the event. You're you're one of a few. It's like climbing Kilimanjaro or something. It's like remember uh, when one by one all of the the Munchkins were slowly dying, you know, and there'd be like the remaining three, and then there were right. two, and then there was that last one, and then he died, and everybody was so sad. Yeah, you think there's an It's Pat Tontine <laughs> where the last person just gets to go punch Julia Sweeney in the face? Perhaps when Pat is born, uh, Pat literally pops out uh, with a and then the doctor immediately drops Pat on the ground. That's funny. And the doctor's not apologetic at all about dropping a newborn. It really feels like something that may happen, you know, pretty frequently in this delivery room. I mean, it may be part of their overall, you know, delivery process or procedures. I, I mean, I guess Pat was born probably, what, in the 50s or 60s, based on the 70s Afro we see later. So... I have no idea. So the doctor says, um, he kind of gives the obligatory, like, oh, it's a seven pound baby. And you're, you know, anticipating boy or girl. But then he gets interrupted when a nurse runs in for another issue. And then, and Pat's mother says, is it a boy or a girl? And then the doctor says, quote, no time. Look for yourself. He literally speaks six <laughs> syllables when simply giving a one syllable response of boy or girl would suffice. This doctor is not only medically negligent, he's not efficient with his time. I mean, he's penny smart, but he's dollar stupid. That's what I'm saying. It's the first time in the film that 
let you get this joke. And listeners, buckle in, because if you liked it that time, you're going to hear a variation of that joke about 700 more times in this movie. Because that's the whole gag of this character is, I don't know, is it a man or a woman? The setups of, like, the doctor being interrupted and, and... uh, saying, you know, see for yourself, Mrs. Pat, Mrs. Riley, I guess her name would be. Is that funny, Pat Riley? Is it supposed to be funny? I don't know. Th- this movie drains so much will to live out of me that <laughs> there's no joy or happiness or mirth left by the end of it. And even at the beginning, it's just so head-scratching and weird. All right, so, yes, the the <laughs> doctor does. I, I just get so goddamn frustrated with this movie. Um, so after the, we get the gag with the doctor and he hands... Uh, uh, Pat to Pat's mother, we immediately launch into the theme song, which is maybe the best part of any of the It's Pat sketches as far as I'm concerned. It's at least kind of a catchy little jingle sort of number. Yeah, that's something they don't do on Saturday Night Live sketches anymore. They used to, you know, have a introductory song, whether it was Toontz's The Driving Cat or It's Pat. Wayne's World was was one as well. Sure. After you get the the It's Pat theme, we then get a good two minutes of just nice, easy listening jazz with a blue male symbol and a pink female symbol just sliding in and out across one another. And that pads the movie to that 77 minute runtime. I kind of think that everyone listed in these credits would be happy to not have their names shown in front of this movie. Um, in fact, my advice would be just go full lethal weapon two. give me the production company movie title and just let's get going. Yeah. I'm a, I, I really like the 70s style of let's have an opening scene. We're going to do a freeze frame where we show you the title and the copyright information. And then we're going to worry about the rest of it on the back end. You know, whenever you see that, you can't tell me there's part of your brain that's like, is this a porn? Oh, wait. No, no, no. Sorry. Sorry. I, I just recently watched The Changeling, uh, the George C. Scott movie. Yeah. And it it has that same opening of, oh, my God, like George C. Scott's wife and child are run down by a car. Freeze frame on his utter horror. The Changeling, copyright 1980. And you're like, that's how you start a movie, ladies and gentlemen. And that that's the part where you went. Is this a porn? Well, I mean, I was erect, but (laughs) that's because I'm watching George C. Scott. I hate to say this to you. We got to get back to Pat. About these credits, though, two things I want to point out, two names in the credits that break my heart a little bit. (laughs) One, Mark motherfucking's Baugh, who is, of course, from Devo and has done music for all kinds of television and movies and stuff like that. He's a great composer. And seeing his name show up was a real disappointment because, you know, the, the entire score, much like the movie itself, is this kind of bouncy cartoon score, which in no way matches the tone of the film. But it's something. And the other name is Adam Bernstein, the director who we probably best know, even if we, if we didn't know it at the time, is the guy who directed all the early They Might Be Giants videos, as well as stuff like The Adventures of Pete and Pete and like 30 Rock and all kinds of like great television stuff, uh, a couple of features thrown in there. And this was his first feature film, which, man, if you're going to come out of the gate uh, as a a first-time feature film director, this has got to be one of those things where after after the the dust has settled, after the week passes and your movie has been yanked from theaters because people stayed away in droves, you've got to start looking your, at yourself in the mirror and be like, man, maybe I shouldn't, maybe I shouldn't be a director anymore. Worst movie I ever saw. Well, next one will be better. <laughs> 
Yeah, except, Chad, Glenn or Glenda in Plan 9, both more watchable than this movie. That is true. Yeah, and actually, Glenn or Glenda, better portrait of someone who is, you know, a non-binary gendered character. I, I wholly agree. I never thought that I would hear those words uttered where right. Glenn or Glenda is a more accurate portrayal of a yeah. non a binary gendered character when compared to fill in the blank. Yeah, you're right. We let's let's get into this because we go from the credits where, you know, my heart is broken seeing who was involved with this into young pad. And again, this is kind of like the construction of superstar of here's an introduction, now we're going to see the character when she's a little bit younger, ostensibly set something up, but it's just the gag of, well, nobody knows what Pat is because you have a girl comes up to, to Pat, young Pat, for Valentine's Day and, and offers Pat a Valentine's card and says, you know, would you be my Valentine and kid Pat? I think voiced by Julia Sweeney, right? It is voiced by Julia Sweeney, which doesn't make any damn sense because you see this kid. It's like, I don't know, watching that Bush's baked bean dog talk or something. The kid's just like flapping its gums and... Out comes Julia Sweeney's voice, which the kid's interpretation of this character couldn't have been any worse than hearing that, you know, nasally whine that she did. I, I think that's probably why she had to overdub it is that the kid could not reach that register of pure annoyance that Sweeney manages. <laughs> Where it's like, look, we're trying to put the audience off right up front. We've showed them the vag. That ought to let them know what they're in for. And now we've got to make sure that they hear Pat's voice and all its glory so we can start really chewing on glass. So after this girl comes up and says, Pat, will you be my valet? And Pat says, uh, are, you know, you must be confused. And then this boy walks over and asks Pat to be uh, his Valentine. And Pat tells him to go take a reality pill. And then we have this moment where Pat then turns and gives a Valentine to someone named Terry, a gender neutral name. And then we pause for laughs. I, I, I don't know. I think it's, it's worthwhile in our effort to, in some way, educate our listeners about uh, the vagaries of, of plot construction. Superstar did this right, where you have young Mary Catherine Gallagher jumping on the kid at the pool, who later turns out to be Harlan Williams' character. And that character, you know, is integral to the film. This character of Terry is seen once for this gag of like, hey, who would have thunk it? There's another person of indeterminate gender in this classroom, and that's who Pat's attracted to. And you will never see hiding her hair of this character again. Forget it ever happened. Pat is in fourth grade and is already wearing the signature Pat outfit of the light blue shirt and black trim and the pants and the glasses and whatever. It's just, yeah, you know, I get some people find a look and they just stick with it you know, from that point going forward or a hairstyle, but this seems a bit excessive. All right. So when we leave that, and I feel like this is where maybe we should get discussion of the character of Pat, his or herself out of the way. We see Pat a little bit older working in a supermarket where Pat is working as a, a grocery bagger and just ends up like ruining somebody's groceries by dumping a watermelon or something on some eggs or milk or some shit. And she is, or he, what the fuck ever, I'm going to use for this because it's Julia Sweeney. So Pat looks awful. Like it's just an unpleasant looking character with the, the bushy eyebrows and the glasses and the tight perm and just the pudginess of it all and the voice and that like that kind of grinding <laughs> laugh. It is a movie 
that dares you as the viewer to not just give a shit about this character, but just to be able to tolerate the central character of your movie. The character that is in nearly every single frame of this film <laughs> is so unpleasant and hard to listen to. And on top of it is a real asshole. <laughs> and not even in Burt Reynolds terms, because Burt Reynolds was an asshole who didn't know he was an asshole. It's just he felt entitled and, you know, I'm showing off. And Pat, on the other hand, seems to kind of understand that she just wants the world around her to be about her entire. And if it's not, she starts throwing tantrums. I think every point that you made is 100% valid. In other films where you see the sort of zero to hero, you know, genre, we meet a character that is awkward or, or different and turns out to be unique and special in a way that is noble or, or someone that you want to cheer on. You sympathize with, you know, maybe their clumsiness or being an outcast because in some way we've all felt that to one degree or another. But you're right. Not Pat. Pat is just a nightmare. Pat should be the villain in a movie like Problem Child. Or remember when uh, Martin Short played that eerily aged man child Clifford? Like that's, <laughs> yes. that's what this should be. Pat should always just be fucking shit up and causing trouble. But then in that scenario, it becomes more of a non-traditional gender character behaving badly. And now we're essentially going down Buffalo Bill Silence of the Lambs. Yeah. It's a, you know, the, the villainous lesbian or whatever there. You know, there's plenty of that in uh, in films all through the especially 70s and 80s. It's frustrating. Like, right out of the gate, this grocery scene in particular, as soon as she busts the dude's groceries and she's just like, I'm sorry. And you're like, this is awful. So, okay, let's start with that. So, Pat, again, drops a watermelon on these eggs. And they hit the egg so hard they explode out of the bag. I mean, you'd really have to just... Oh, a watermelon down to that. So she's she's terrible at this job. So at this point in the movie, you're thinking, oh, this is what the movie's going to be about. It's going to be about Pat finding um, that true calling of what Pat should be doing as a as a career or vocation. And I was like, oh, that's that's what we're going to do with this film because in the next scene of the movie, we see Pat working for the postal service, and Pat's walking through this trailer park and yells out, "Here comes the mail!" That's a joke because. Male phonetically could either it's a homophone, right? It it is a homophone. I got to tell you, if I want homophone jokes, I'm going to the first Austin Powers, and I'm going to let Doctor Evil discuss the caliber of fembots. Thank you very much. Or the fact that Preparation H feels good on the whole. Um, <laughs> far superior film, as are all movies committed to celluloid. Yeah, so she she's working for the post office. She's just opening people's mail and going through it. And again, as an audience member, I'm like, hey, you're committing a federal crime. <laughs> Let's just put that aside. But also, she is reading the personal details. Like, she she's not trying to hide it. She's telling people as she's, like, shoving their open mail into the mail mailboxes like i guess your mother-in-law's coming for a visit and you're just like oh my god what a repulsive character (laughs) you are so pissed off at this movie i'm on page two of my notes and i have a stack of comments on this film i'm so happy that you're so angry about this because it's just so incredibly bad (laughs) oh it'll get worse (laughs) 
It's so bad. Yeah, so so we see Pat just like jamming fistfuls of letters just in the most obnoxious and irresponsible way into the mailbox. And you're right. It is a crime to open and read other people's mail. Plus, Pat, as a letter carrier, is just haphazardly dropping mail on the ground. It's the Taylor Negron mail carrier from, I think, One Crazy Summer or Better Off Dead, one of those. Right. Just her fisting these mailboxes <laughs> with handfuls of open mail is one of the more disturbing images I haven't been able to quite shake. Pat goes back and is talking to uh, a supervisor who then we hear that Pat has been on the job less than five days. And that's not the shocking part of this scene because the supervisor then tells Pat that someone had complained because Pat opened a letter and then informed them that their son was gay. You know, this movie came out in 1994. And just for me, Ellen DeGeneres didn't come out until 97. And so, you know, telling someone that their son was gay at this time, it's not like it is today. And I'm guessing that today it's not the most comfortable, you know, thing in the world. But just trying to put a little context around that, especially with Pat as this sort of, you know, androgynous character, just seemed even more awkward and, I don't know, offensive in some way. There is something about Pat that that's unpleasant, but her boss isn't that much better. When she comes in, he is literally holding mail up to the light, presumably to determine contents and in my mind is looking for the ones with you know the the checks to steal <laughs> so these are all terrible people and pat's just the worst of the bunch the supervisor tells pat uh, after informing the complaint about telling them that the parents that the son was gay that this is a federal offense and pat says being gay like that's a federal offense and he's like no you know opening mail however look kind of doing the math on this this was reagan's america so you know Maybe thinking that being gay is a federal offense might not have been a bridge too far. Yeah, well, give it time, <laughs> Lowenstein. We're right around the corner again. The, the supervisor puts on a bulletproof vest because this was, you know, back, I guess, in the 1980s where postal workers were, you know, hit with this string of workplace shooting, which is where we got the phrase going postal. Yeah, so the gag of, you know, I'm going to put on the vest. Are you disgruntled, Pat? You know, is, is what he says. We fire Pat from the post office and then to kind of crank the knob to 11 on how terrible a character our central protagonist can be the next thing we see is literally pat spying on her neighbor kathy griffin through her window old old decapitator herself kathy griffin showing up in this movie and is probably the best performance maybe dave foley's good but he's just doing his slightly female character from kids in the hall so you know what sure uh, the, the, yeah. the the it's pat uh, award for best actress goes to Kathy Griffin. Congratulations, Miss Griffin. Who plays a character named Kathy Griffin. Her performance is so transparent that you can actually see the actress inside the character, inside the actress. It's amazing. Yeah. I mean, if you, if you watch It's Pat for no, well, no other reason, um, you still shouldn't. She comes walking in with a bag of groceries and it's a, you know, big paper bag. Why is it when people come in with the bags of groceries, there's always like groceries peeking out over the fucking top. I mean, if I see you carrying a grocery bag, I assume that there are groceries in it. Unless there's dripping from the corner or some sort of weird red stain... And then I'm like, well, it's a head or a body part. But if it's a grocery bag, I don't need to see celery sticking out and, you know, whatever the hell else that's long and skinny. You're like, oh, that's groceries. Right. A baguette and some celery. <laughs> yeah, that's what it, it's always that shit. Just knock it off. It's a fucking grocery bag. You know, just like when you have luggage, I'm like, hmm, I wonder what's in there. You know, you know, and maybe it's knives. Maybe it's a pig. <laughs> 
<laughs> right. Maybe, maybe it's Yayo. What does Kathy have in the bag? Oh, it's just celery. I wonder what this character likes to eat. Oh, she likes celery. And apparently she likes total brand cereal. That really gives me some insights into her. Just fuck off. It would be better if, it, it, you know, if, if it was indiscriminate meat. Just a bag full of meat and that you had no <laughs> idea where it came from, what sort of animal produced it. But even then, like, what if it was just a skinned full-sized goat and you just see it from the top legs, the head, eyes bugging out. And then again, but that gives you insight to the character when it's just random, long, skinny groceries. It just, it doesn't mean anything. I hated this movie. So... <laughs> So, yeah, Pat's, Pat's peeking in the window. I don't believe this is an arrestable crime, but it's definitely creep. Kathy Griffin shows up and Pat says, I was noticing that your your VCR was flashing 12. And Kathy's like, oh, that that's okay. And Pat says, I could fix it for you. To which Kathy Griffin says, all right, uh, come on in. And Pat gets all offended and says like, well, not now. I got shit going on. And then just, just, and then just sort of waddles off. As though, you know, Kathy Griffin is the asshole for saying, oh, I'm going to allow you to come in to do this weird favor for me that you observed while standing and peering into my apartment. Let's apply just a bit of reality to this situation. Let's say you had a neighbor that periodically just peered through your window face to the glass as if they were an orphan on Christmas morning looking at the Christmas ham on the table. Except this neighbor just wants to come into your house and fuck with your shit. The authorities have been called no less than six times. There are multiple restraining orders. I'm already looking for a new place to live. (laughs) Yeah. Kathy Griffin, at some point, where is the landlord of this place? Where's this absentee landlord that cannot put some kind of brakes on the insanity going on in his, his or her apartment complex? I would have multiple firearms. I would have a concealed weapon permit probably multiple of them in various states. There's no way. This is just this is just abhorrent behavior. In a slightly skewed version of this film where Kathy Griffin is the main character, this movie is single white female. It's just Pat <laughs> encroaching on her life, screwing with her stuff in her apartment, taking her job, assuming her life. It, it's horrifying. You could make this a better movie later on when we introduce the new neighbor character if that had been her boyfriend and then, she, and then Pat stole her boyfriend. That would have been good. But I'm I'm not going to go down the path of making this movie better because I'm just it does not deserve. Uh... Yeah, I I don't think we're going to play too much fan fiction with this one. It just needs to be, in the words of the film The Haunting, it should be burned to the ground and the earth should be salted so that nothing grows again. <laughs> so our next scene, Pat goes down to this. Uh... Like local five and dime to, to pick up some things. And then we meet Tippy, who is played by Kathy Najimne. Najimi, I think. She's this uh, store clerk that is incredibly uncomfortable with Pat being there. She's behaving like, you know, Pat has a gun. How, why wouldn't you? If this crazy person came into your place and there's a lack of self awareness about the Pat character where Pat is oblivious to the fact that the rest of the world has questions. And Pat, like another example of we're going to tell the same joke five times in the same scene and maybe you'll laugh at one of them. Fingers crossed. Pat is telling Kathy and Jimmy, like, I've got, I, I need some lubrication. And it turns out that it's not, you know, vaginal lube or nothing. It's just I, like 
What what the hell was it? It was something it, else. Pat needs uh, lubrication for eyes. It was allergies. That's what right. It was. She then, had, yeah, she had dry eyes, and they you know I need some protection. And it's you think it's the same gag like oh is it going to be rubbers? That means Pat's a dude. And it turns out no, it's you know mousetrap or some shit. It doesn't matter. It's just <laughs> we're telling the same joke four different ways in the same scene, and the character the our central character still has no idea that. <laughs> That her behavior is in any way strange, which would be fine if she were likable, like like we were talking about. If, if she were a force for good, this noble spirit who is who is treated badly by the world, but has you know, it's the superstar thing. It's I I have a dream, I'm going to pursue it. I know the rest of the world doesn't. Uh, like there's no moment in this in this movie where you have that Molly Shannon uh, moment of I'm sorry, I'm like this. You know, there's never any of that. It's just this horrible, horrible person running full speed ahead and just barreling over anyone that dares question her behavior. This this store clerk at one point says um, she doesn't want to know anything about Pat's sex life. I, I mean, I don't know about you and just the, the people that you meet on. I, I don't typically want to know about anybody's sex life. Oh, I do. Oh, I I, I want to know from everybody all the time. <laughs> you kidding me? Like, what weird shit are you into? What's the weirdest thing you've done? How many times? How many fingers have you had in your ass? <laughs> You might be the pet of your uh, of your complex. Yeah, well, I'm not allowed to talk to most of the people here anymore. <laughs> I think I think you're the pet of your complex. Yeah, I just lean in the window. <laughs> Are are you guys doing it tonight? <laughs> so so Tippy the the store clerk uh, shoes Pat out of the store like she's some sort of you know random possum that wandered in. Pat is now looking for work, and there's uh, a joke when Pat gets outside that on the street, Pat's just sort of casually looking around, and we see other people with other careers that may be jobs for Pat. There's a uh, uh, firefighters and policemen. Then uh, I guess it's supposed to get a little ridiculous because some astronauts walk by, and that's a joke because astronauts normally just don't walk around on the streets. This joke should grow in ridiculousness. Like, you know, it should be, you know, heart surgeons and trapeze artists, you know, or somebody getting shot out of a cannon. It should be, it should be something, you know, progressively more stupid, but it doesn't. Uh, it even this joke is, it's almost cut from the same cloth of that guy making the, the kayak in Wayne's World 2. It's sort of this visual non sequitur. It's sort of like that, uh, Wayne's World 2 gag with the stuff being handed over the crowd, you know, where yeah. it's the refrigerator and the goat and all that kind of crazy shit. Right. Like the astronaut should be the beginning of an increasingly crazier set of jobs. And actually, the heart surgery, I think, would actually be really funny if she looked over and you saw two people performing heart surgery in the middle of the street or something. It's like, oh, okay, that's a nice visual gag. And it would fit the kind of cartoony vibe of this movie because it's very brightly colored and and the music, as I mentioned before, is real bouncy. The mother spa stuff is, is... actually good cartoon music and that sort of thing should be in this movie there there should be a whole lot more of hey we live in this heightened reality let's do crazy stuff with it it's just <laughs> the movie doesn't care to do that at any point so also the movie constantly changes what it's about so at this point the movie is about pat finding a job we go in uh in the next scene pat has a job working at a, a sushi restaurant and as pat is making food violently sneezes on a plate of food right in front of the customer and then proceeds to serve it, which is awful. It's vile. Mm -hmm. The guy takes the food from Pat 
What in the fuck is that? Look, I am no germaphobe, okay? But if you sneeze on my food and it is a violent Ghostbusters, someone just got slimed type of, of snot sneeze. Look, this one, this food is not only getting remade. First off, I'm leaving. But if, if this is the only place to eat on planet Earth, the food's getting remade, okay? I want a full-on anal retentive chef treatment of your entire workspace before you even start anew. And for those scoring at home, anal retentive chef, character from Saturday Night Live, played by Phil Hartman, had two appearances. Oh, that, that's a shame. That was actually a much better character. I'd watch a movie about that. I, I'd watch I'd watch 77 minutes of him just cleaning up his workstation. That would be a dream come true rather than having to sit through this horseshit. I'll tell you, if, if I had to make, you know, push come to shove, they tell me, hey, you've got to make a movie based on a sketch from SNL. I would love to see a full length version of the sketch between John Lovitz and Phil Hartman, where Phil Hartman is the Hollywood actor in like the 30s and John Lovitz <laughs> is his age. Agent. Do you know the sketch I'm talking about? Yes, like, I do. You know, I you're finished. You're all dried up. See, I get it. a thousand letters a day telling me the same. All right, I hear you. But what's the word on the street, Terry? That stuff. I would love to see that for 77 minutes. I always thought it'd be interesting to make a Saturday Night Live movie that was more in the vein of Monty Python, where you bring in all of these characters in this shared universe. That would be fun. And in uh, as a Saturday Night a bit of a Saturday Night Live nerd um, that would actually bring it full circle because obviously Python was one of the inspirations for Lorne Michaels when he created the show. All right, let's get back to this atrocity. <sighs> All right. Yeah, but about this sneezing on the food thing, I would just like to point out this is also another thing that makes this character repulsive. Pat is constantly like sneezing and drooling and spitting. I don't understand, Chad, why no one thought, hey, this character is terrible. Who on earth would want to follow the adventures of this person for five minutes, much less 77? Pat that's like one of those garbage bail kids that just grew up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So Pat's boss at the sushi place is speaking Japanese to two other customers that apparently are not eating food covered in boogers. One of these customers in Japanese asks if Pat is a male or a female. And the boss says he went to uh, a public bath with Pat and can say for certain that Pat is a... And then some old guy steps in front of the, you know, the shot and cranks up a blender or something. We don't hear the answer. So just real quick. One, what in the fuck is a public bath? At least here in the United States. I have, I don't know. And two, who would go there with their boss or coworkers? I mean, I can say having lunch with your coworkers, maybe drinks after work, but I'm going to go take a bath with people that I work with. What the hell is that? Well, if movies have taught me nothing, Chad, public baths are primarily used by Viggo Mortensen to nakedly murder people. Uh, uh, in the Russian mob, a la Eastern Promises, which is a fine, fine film, and we should talk about that instead of its path. When I think public bath, I think about the sink in the back of a Walgreens that uh, <laughs> is frequented by homeless people that just need to go in there and, and, and somehow saturate the dried vomit off of their arms and legs so that uh, the cops aren't constantly telling them to move along. Give, give the old twig and berries a bit of the house your father. <laughs> so these these two Japanese people leave and say their good goodbyes in their native language. And then Pat yells out, hey, sprickin' the Americano, por favor. And look, I, I'm guessing like part of this is what, German? Part of this is Italian? Part of this is Spanish? It's 100% racist. And surprisingly, 
I think that based on this comment and other evidence that we're going to get into a little bit later uh, in the movie, that in the real world, Pat is definitely a Trump supporter and is constantly having to justify personal political views to essentially every single person across the political spectrum. Yeah, Pat is essentially the comments below any YouTube video come to life. Spreckens the Americano poor before. <laughs> also, worth pointing out at this point in my notes... I actually uh, wrote the line, if this movie doesn't end with an answer to the question of Pat's gender, fuck this movie. (laughs) Spoiler alert, it doesn't. Yeah, spoiler alert, fuck this movie. (laughs) The problem with that is, in my mind, that if you're going to make make a feature-length version of this stupid It's Pat character, you should at least have the common decency to have the movie mean something, to have the character grow in some way and you know whether or not you want to recycle that character back on saturday night live you should still have some stakes there again some basic screenwriting chat there should be stakes to a movie there should be a thing that a character wants to accomplish a central goal a central theme and the movie is about that ultimately and as you pointed out this movie is just too scatterbrained because right now it's about her looking for a job but that's going to change here in a second it's and then it's going to change two three minutes later it it changes multiple times throughout uh painful 77 minutes that it is so because of the sneezing on food and presumably openly racist views at work pat gets fired from the sushi restaurant and then pat goes back over to kathy griffin's apartment and just walks in just like kramer style but pat is oblivious to other people's sense of privacy and personal space kathy griffin is sitting on the couch painting her toenails and she's wearing nothing but a towel and she asks pat if she should be embarrassed and first off the answer is yes and the reason is that you're in this movie and then kathy griffin tells pat that barging in is not acceptable behavior again something that you learn when you're four maybe five if you're slow to the game right let's also not forget that not only does she barge in uninvited she's got like tissues crammed up her nose which she then pulls out and just leaves on kathy griffin's coffee tape because it's important that every scene make us like this character just a little bit less how is this not on purpose like these are talented writers and and comedians this is intentional like there's no way you do this as a functioning human (laughs) well and it's okay so it's important to point out too because there are lovable assholes in movies like bad santa has a terrible person at its center but the movie itself is so audacious and funny that you kind of get behind this character because you know billy bob thornton's character in that movie is kind of trying to do the right thing he just has no moral compass or sobriety to help him with it pat on the other hand doesn't have any moral compass every like she starts from a place of wanting to do something born out of pure narcissism and selfishness and that never ever changes pat tells kathy griffin that she'll fix the vcr clock and it's so simple that any 
moron can do it. <laughs> like straight up insulting yeah. Kathy Griffin's intelligence. And then uh, Kathy Griffin gives Pat some not so subtle cues to leave, including standing up, opening the door and essentially pointing the way out. And then Pat just walks over and sits on the couch and starts talking about being unemployed again and asks Kathy Griffin if she could make an announcement about it on her radio station. And this is here that we learn that Kathy Griffin possibly works at a radio station. And I'm assuming on a show called Who Doesn't Have a Job? And that's the sole purpose of her her radio show. To which Kathy Griffin says, no, I won't do that. To which Pat responds, well, think it over and let me know when you do make me the announcement because I want my friends to tune in. Pat has got to be on the spectrum, right? Like on the, on the, spe- whatever the, the, the autistic spectrum is, there's like, there's zero and then it goes up to Pat. <laughs> It's not dissociative disorder. It is um, chronic assholery. I, yeah, I I think that's recognized by the AMA. It it is not as if Pat somehow has trouble dealing with the public. Like she she interacts with people all the time. She she has no fear of people. She just is an awful awful person. I don't even know if it's a spectrum thing. I think it's just you're a shitty person. All right, here's something the listeners won't care about. That we had a, back in the day, there was a math teacher that we both shared that was a real asshole. He was an asshole. And that guy ended up getting cancer and dying. And I never felt bad about that for a goddamn second because he was a real asshole to children. He was the first person that I knew that when they died, I thought, well, that's good. The world's a better place now. He's dead. Uh-huh. Right. And I don't know that he was on the spectrum. I think he was just a dick. Just like I think Pat is probably mentally mostly fine. I mean, there's probably a disorder or two somewhere lingering. But I think the root cause of all of this is just, as you put it, assholery. The next scene, Pat takes a job as some kind of, we find out, utility inspector. And it's a job that Pat admits, it's totally beneath me. Right, because the world should bend its knee to Pat. Uh, that That is her, her whole focus in life is you know, riches and fame, and it should be given to her. She shouldn't have to work for anything just by her her very being, you know. Pat was a millennial before there were millennials. <laughs> Trailblazer. Pat goes to a strip club that looks like it belongs in the seedy side of Tijuana, and it's... <laughs> It's right. just, it's, there's about to be a shootout a la 48 hours or something. It's pretty skeezy. It's also so shitty that this strip club has karaoke on Thursday nights and apparently some sort of amateur dance contest on Tuesday nights based on the plastic banners that are hanging up. And the name of the strip club, according to the stained glass window on the door is LGT Vegas. And my assumption here is that this is a play on TGI Fridays with the LGT being a reference to lesbian, gay, and transgender. Um, I don't know how Vegas plays into all this. If that were the case, wouldn't the movie have some sort of sensitivity about that subject matter? You know, if if they're putting Easter eggs like that in, in there? I don't know, man. I was just trying to figure out what the hell LGT Vegas could possibly represent. Hey, I'm going to go out on a limb and say it means absolutely nothing, <laughs> uh, much like most of the scenes in this film. So, so Pat rolls in and it's, it's the middle of the day. It's like noon and, um, day shift strippers are a unique lot to begin with. And in this particular strip club, there's one stripper who's dressed up like a Viking and there's one who's a a cowboy or something. I'm sure there's a pirate roaming around somewhere. Pat throws out the line to one of them 
Is it hot in here? Is it just me? And then walks over and turns down the thermostat in this business. This is so beyond the pale of accepted human behavior. You do not walk into a place of business and then proceed to walk over and adjust the air conditioning just because you're feeling a little bit warm. This is in keeping with the it's it's pad character of I'm going to march into a situation. I'm going to make it all about me and ruin the good time of everyone around me. <laughs> not that anyone who is in a strip club at 1.30 in the afternoon is having all that good a time to begin with. From Olga on the stage with, with the C-section scar to the alcoholic in the booth who is busy rubbing one out before the bouncer casts a, a scant eye his way. <laughs> Everyone is reaching a bottom. So it's in this strip club that we get to meet Chris, who's played by Dave Foley. And look, I know that everybody's got bills to pay. All right. And if you're interested, um, I highly recommend going and listening to Dave Foley's interview with Mark Marin over at the WTF podcast. It's a kind of an older one, but it's really good. It's insightful to him. And based on that, he may have needed a couple of bucks or two, you know, at this point in his, his career. Dave Foley has this, this overgrown Dutch boy haircut. He speaks using his kids in the hall female voice. And I just want to say right now, from henceforth, I'm just going to call. Dave Foley's character, Chris. Again, another androgynous character who is Pat's, let's call it, love interest in this movie. When Pat and Chris first shake hands, we cut to one of the shittiest dream sequences I've ever seen. Where most dream sequences take place in a world where something is either extravagant or different or unusual or fantastic or something. The dream sequence that we go to here is Chris and Pat dancing on like a shitty soundstage with a curtain behind it and some dry ice machines. And that's it. Like, it looked more cheap than the rest of this movie. It was one of those things where I was like, really? This was your dream sequence? It, it was a, an effect you could have pulled off on Saturday Night Live. You know, like in a live uh, studio audience where you got to put the set up and rip it down in about 45 seconds. It looked like prom on a sitcom that was uh, produced and shot in Canada for Nick at Night starring people you you don't recognize at all yeah like maybe willie ames may is the principal or something yeah he's a vice principal <laughs> see is he still bible man what the hell happened to willie ames yeah he got religion he's he's bible man now everybody on charles and charles got religion good for them you know yeah i mean in no way are they exploiting it for their own personal gain no, not at all so here we find out that that chris is working as the at the bartender at this strip club petri dish so we immediately learn that chris has a phd in cultural anthropology which is the study of human societies and their surroundings and i don't know why you would lead with your educational background if you are working at a strip club in the middle of the day and that you've been there for 10 years you, sure you may have some fancy degree but you're not doing jack shit with it motherfucker and i'm supposed to be impressed with that you're in the bathroom cleaning up puddles of jizz and god knows what you know between pouring down watered down drinks and and replenishing the buffet with dried out chicken wings and whatever potato skins this movie's just so fucking stupid i you know what's funny uh or a bit ironic is everything you just said there was supposed to be pat's line <laughs> when chris tells her that she has a degree in <laughs> cultural anthropology that page of the script fell out on the floor <laughs> right it was that what well, they had to cut it for the rating <laughs> 
<laughs> the problem, strangely, wasn't the word jizz. It was a motherfucker. <laughs> um, so they decide that they're going to go out together and and have some dinner. And they end up going parking. And, and I mean, feel free to fill in some blanks here, but who could give a shit? <laughs> it's just a whole lot of Pat talking about herself and... And Dave Foley is Chris saying like, oh, Pat, that's so fascinating. I'm so fascinated by you, Pat. Even from here, you have to wonder, and maybe it's just because I like Dave Foley so much, and I'm I'm whatever the anthropomorphization of applying the person I like to the character that they're playing in a movie, whatever that term is. I just feel like he could do better. I just feel like Pat is beneath him. He should be moving on. Like when they br- One of the times they break up in this movie, it happens a couple couple of times the whole time i was like yes absolutely right you should not be near this person this person is toxic yeah it's it's awful i mean it's just fuck this do do we want to get to kyle and stacy is it time to bring in some more characters that are gonna muddy these waters pat's uh new neighbors that are moving in and this is played by charles rocket and in my notes i have a nameless wife you're you have a better you know memory or you give more of a shit than i did that her name was stacy and his name's kyle well let's not go crazy pat and chris come out of pat's apartment while these new neighbors are moving in pat falls down the stairs in a just a shit poor bit of physical comedy and everyone rushes to see if pat's okay and pat says i think i crushed my nuts and then reaches into the pocket and pulls out two oversized walnuts that have been, you know, they were meant for a snack and now they're broken. So pause for laughs. And then Kyle introduces himself and his wife and goes to shake Pat's hand. And, and Pat stares back just in confused silence where Chris, who again has some sense of social decorum and is not a total asshole, makes introductions with Kyle and his wife. And then Pat and Chris hold hands and they literally just skip off together. Two adult human beings that are of normal mental capabilities are just holding hands and skipping off. What in the hell is going on? It's the kind of behavior that you see out of your Harpo Marxes, uh, your Pat and Chris's. It, it's just abnormal human behavior. You know what? I'll allow it if you're skipping through a field with a lover. I, I think that is the only time it's appropriate and even then it's questionable but you're also out in the middle of nowhere in nature and there's no one there to judge you but god (laughs) if i hear about it i'm definitely judging you that is not acceptable behavior for anyone above the age of 10 and even then you have to both be no it's not acceptable unacceptable unacceptable that makes That begs the question. Now that you say that, anybody above the age of 10, is that the cutoff? Is that where if you see somebody skipping, you're like, hey, how old are you? 12? Come here, let me talk to you for a second. And then you just give them a smack across the face and go, cut that shit out. Give them one in the chops. (laughs) Adult skipping, that's like for those people that that pay a, a shit ton of money to go to summer camp for adults. You know what I mean? And they're fucking reliving their youth and, and, you know, playing like professional dodgeball and shit like that. Grow the fuck up. Get a goddamn (laughs) job, man. What are you doing? Huh? Yeah. If you ever meet a 44 year old that says he plays ultimate frisbee on the weekends, get the fuck away. That man is dangerous. The hell is wrong with you? So Kyle refers to Chris and Pat as wonderfully provocative because he can't make sense of their sex or gender. And he tells his wife and she says, save that for the bedroom. So 
I'm thinking that these two are under some freaky deaky shit when the lights go out. Right. You know, and that, that's cool, man. I have no problem with that, but especially when we see what happens to, to Kyle, um, who the hell knows what they're up to. So then we cut to the, we cut to a, a bedroom and we see a string of both male and female clothing, uh, including underwear leading up to a bed where Chris and Pat are together. And then, uh, they both ask each other to marry one another at the exact same time. And then Chris tells Pat, I love to stroke your pussy. Pat. And then Pat reveals a cat named Muffy who, you know, likes it too. My head wanted to explode. My note here just at, like ends with, I hate this movie. That was the recurring theme of all of my notes, which is, this is all terrible. But the other gag in this scene that, again, falls flat is that trail of clothing that leads up to them. You, When you finally, the camera finally finds Chris and Pat, they're both dressed exactly as they were. Like, there is no reason for the trail of clothes, which I guess is the joke. I said those exact same words watching this entire movie. Like, I guess that's the joke. I don't know. The only thing I know for sure is a joke is the, I want to, I love stroking your pussy double entendre stuff that this movie does. That is the only thing that's a clear joke. The problem is none of that stuff is very fun. Unless you're Burt Reynolds. <laughs> right. You know what? I bet Burt Reynolds thought this was a real hoot. He's one of those 286 people that saw it. <laughs> Funny little uh, man, woman. I don't know. <laughs> it's funny. Can't tell uh, what's going on. Fine. It's got perm. It's got a perm. <laughs> funny little cowboy shirt. <laughs> I wonder if they pad that thing. She have uh, knockers under there, you think? Hey, speaking of knockers, Julia Sweeney clearly has her, it looks like her, her breast bound to, you know, for the Pat character. Did you have any thoughts on whether or not Dave Foley's portrayal of Chris had like a prosthetic to give him like small, I don't know, like androgynous breasts? Did you see that as well? Yeah, yeah. Either that or just really big nipples, which is a thing I didn't know about Dave Foley. Yeah, and it, it's in one of these scenes actually where, you know, Chris is kind of laying down the law with Pat. Uh, but yeah, there there was a moment there was like, does Chris have boobs? I don't who cares? And if so, why am I aroused? <laughs> why am I not? <laughs> Have I become Kyle in this movie? In the next scene, we find out that Kyle is an architect and he's working in this room in their apartment, which is inspired by the, the Mike Brady collection. And his wife walks in and asks if he needs anything from the store. And he says, I've been having a craving for nuts. And which is, you know, that's sort of the, uh-oh, Pat's gotten into his head or something like that. And his wife says that she saw Pat at the laundry room. And then Kyle immediately asks what Pat's laundry looked like, which one, it has a lot of blue shirts and a lot of beige pants. I can answer that right now and I've never seen Pat's laundry. Pat shops at the uh, Wayne's World We Need One Outfit uniform store. <laughs> right. Uh, Stacy says that the laundry was bras, panties, boxer shorts, and jock straps. Which, first of all, who in the hell of these two is wearing a jock strap and why? You know, comfort and support, chat. <laughs> I don't know why that's weird. I'm wearing, I'm wearing two right now at the same time. <laughs> when I take one off, it breathes. His wife informs them that Pat and Chris are now engaged and that they are invited to the engagement party. Why would they be invited to the engagement party? They just moved in like two days ago. I've lived in the same neighborhood for 10 years. I wouldn't invite anybody within a three mile radius of where I live to any kind of party that I own. I barely know the names of the people who live across the fucking street from where I live. I don't know what the hell they are. It's that guy. The guy with the glasses, the guy with the weird shoes, and the one who's always, you know, pointing a gun at people. <laughs> Funny little kid always tugging at his pants. <laughs> Again, Pat is not antisocial. You know, like, Pat is the kind of person that's going to invite everyone to this engagement party, no matter how... Look... 
Pat's best, self-proclaimed best friend is just someone who tolerates her enough not to call the police. <laughs> Pat may be the opposite of antisocial. Like the barging in, the the lack of, of social awareness. I don't know what the hell that is, but based on what we're seeing right here, it, it's not good. Let's just call it for what it is. The character of Pat is just an androgynous Steve Urkel. It's the same kind of voice, almost the same kind of posture and all of that stuff. <laughs> That's what this character is. I'd like to see a movie about you playing Pat. You, Yeah, you can come to my one-man show. It's Bo, colon, it's Pat. <laughs> Hi, everyone. <laughs> that would be amazing. All right, so... <laughs> yeah, check out patreon.com forward slash it's Bo, colon, it's Pat. <laughs> you set up a Kickstarter for that. I need $1 million for, for the show. If you get it... <laughs> It'll be a treat yeah. for everyone. Uh, we're only selling 286 tickets. <laughs> Get them while they're hot. <laughs> that number may go down. Let me read tomorrow's obituaries. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have a tontine of our own. So Stacy leaves Kyle, and he's looking out the window with some binoculars, and he's spying on Pat. And it, he's clearly becoming obsessed with Pat. First off, people in this complex spy on each other a lot, which, that's weird. Unless that's your thing. But for me, that's weird. Um, I prefer ostracizing my neighbors rather than getting to know them better. I think I agree with that. Yeah, but he's rear windowing her. So that's what the movie's going to be about now. That That's what the movie's going to be about now. We have a neighbor who is becoming obsessed with Pat. All that stuff about Pat finding a job, forget about that. That was just, that was bullshit. You know, we, did, we didn't know what we were doing. You know what I mean? We got 30 pages into the script, and then we realized, hey, we got Kyle. Our movie's going to be Rear Window. He's going to become obsessed with Pat and wanting to figure out, is Pat a, a male or a female? What the hell's going on with Pat? That's our movie, right? Mm-hmm. Well, for, for now. For now, right. Our next scene, Pat and Chris are just laying around, and Pat tells Chris about being fired from a security job at uh, La Brea Tar Pits. Is that a joke? It, it, it's a novelty. I mean, it helps to anchor where the movie is taking place if you didn't know already either that or pat had a hell of a commute to go you know take on to a take on a job that uh didn't work out chris is upset that pat lost another job and pat tells chris that you know i had 23 jobs last year which which that is excessive and i can't even imagine the nightmare of doing my taxes with that many w-2s <laughs> oh god yeah just, just going like new entry new entry and all of them you know this <laughs> Every single one, it would be like uh, Steve Martin writing out the Optograb <laughs> checks. $4.31. <laughs> Every single entry is like your, your pay stub, $11.19. Taxes paid, $0.03. Cent. Don't want to get audited. Yeah, none of these are high-paying jobs. It's Pat is not setting the world on fire in terms of education experience. And with that kind of job history, I think you and I have both been in positions of hiring people at some point in our lives. But if you see someone who has had, say, four or five jobs in the same year, your first instinct is, you're probably a drug addict. You shouldn't work for me. Let me ask you a question. Somebody rolls in tomorrow and you get a re- and they give you a resume and you look at it and it's just 100% honest and it shows their work history for the last year and they had 23 jobs that that involved a, a security guard at the La Brea tar pits as well as numerous other just disconnected forms of of employment. I would hire that person just on the grounds to figure like like what the hell is going on? <laughs> yeah, what is your deal? You you become the Kyle to their path. Fascinated. 
So Chris calls out Pat on not having a career and essentially that Pat's a loser and Pat agrees to try harder to find a job. In their apartment, did you notice that they have this giant commercial-sized jar of, of sliced yellow banana peppers? I did. In a weird movie, that was weird. Like, I've only seen those at maybe, like, I don't know, certain pizzerias or like a, usually like a, you know, certain delis where they slice their own meat or something. And it's more decorative. But this is, like, prominently placed in their house on a bookshelf. This giant thing of pepperoncinos or something like this. Maybe it's just the last thing Pat read. The, like, the back of the, the pepper jar? Uh-huh. Just the nutritional information. <laughs> And company address. <laughs> when you, it's when, my favorite book. <laughs> <laughs> then our next scene, Kyle has all these black and white photos of Pat all over the wall to his office, and he's sitting there, and the lights. He out. has become Sharky. It is. It is like Sharky. He's and he's sitting there, and the lights are out, and he's watching Pat's apartment. Kyle is recording into a, a dictaphone, this little mini tape recorder, and he says, "What a strange attraction I have for my neighbor Pat." I don't even know if Pat is a man or a woman. And his wife comes to the door and, you know, she's like, thun, 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 like, what are you doing in there? And he gives him the old, oh, nothing, honey. I'll be out in a minute, which is code for, oh, honey, I'm masturbating. And then, <laughs> and then Kyle sees Pat in the bathroom, standing up over the toilet, appearing to pee the way men uh, do when they stand to pee. Sometimes men sit down to pee. If you're a lady and you didn't know that, sometimes they do. Sometimes you're just tired or lazy or, I don't know, you want to read. You ever sit down to pee? Yeah, I mean, every now and again you're like, hey, I don't know if there's a number two going along with this number one, but I'm going to pop a squad here and see what happens. And sometimes it comes, sometimes it doesn't. It's just how life goes. Not all the time, but every now and again, sure. You're a forward-thinking kind of man. That's what I like about you. (laughs) Well, I'm just uh, incontinent. <laughs> or, you, or you like surprises. Sometimes you surprise yourself. <laughs> right. You know, what I like to do is eat about, I don't know, 27 buffalo wings, throw some gin on top of that, <laughs> and see what happens. You remember that time you called me up and you said that you were going to eat nothing but um, yellow can corn niblets <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> to see if, if over time <laughs> your shit would eventually come out as just a glob of corn kernels. I can't tell you how close I came to performing that experiment just recently, as a matter of fact. That's a lot of corn, my friend. I was, But let me let me tell you this. I was kind of on uh, sort of a fast uh, for a couple of weeks where I, I wasn't eating much. And and I only ate one thing. That was kind of the gig, is just pick, pick a, a vegetable of some kind, and that's all you eat for two weeks. You know, kind of cleanses you and whatnot. So I almost went corn for that very reason but but it started to scare me a little bit so i uh i backed off on the corn and i went potatoes instead all right and you didn't shit out a potato i shit uh mashed potatoes um but not a full not a baker you know that's what i'm talking about no 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 but i think you and i are both mature enough chad to acknowledge that yes, sometimes when you eat corn niblets, they uh, remain largely intact on the way out. And I have always found that fascinating. The human body is a mysterious thing. <laughs> it's weird as shit. <laughs> Let's look. I gotta. I gotta. I gotta get back on the uh, it's Pat Highway. We've detoured off. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Speaking of. <laughs> Yeah, let's talk about it. All right, so Kyle sees uh, Pat presumably taking a piss. By the way, Chad, have you ever sat down to pee? No. Um, so 
he grabs his video camera and goes all like cinema verite, busting into Pat's apartment, throwing open the bathroom door, just like, ha ha! Finally, he's got his man and or woman, but he's going to know for sure. But that's where we get the reveal that Pat is just standing over the toilet, pouring out a carton of orange juice. Now, I've done a lot of weird things in and around toilets. At no point have I ever thought, hey, I think this milk or orange juice has turned on me. I should probably put it in the toilet. (laughs) And I'll tell you why, Chad. I've got a reason for that. And it's because of uh, kitchen sinks. Because the objects in my refrigerator are generally closer to the sink, which is also a place where you can dump fluids, than my toilet. Strangely enough, um, I've shit and pissed in my kitchen sink a lot more than I have my bathroom toilet. <laughs> wow. Like the first one I'm not as surprised by, but the deuce is what's taken me aback. Now that you describe the logistics of how you dispose of sullied food products, I think what I've been doing is wrong. Look, I'm not going to tell you it's wrong, Chad. You live life the way you want to live it. I will say that there have been utilities designed to make that process easier. And I think you're taking the long way home on the poops and You know what? Let's offline about this outside of this episode. I've got a lot of questions here. <laughs> sure. I'll, I'll do what I can. Uh, Kyle offers to record Pat and Chris's honeymoon. Uh, I mean, your engagement party, which <sighs> I know. And, and here's the thing. Maybe, you know what? Maybe because this is, this is Los Angeles and he's got this big camera. Maybe he makes porn. Uh, you know, it's not out of the question. Again, everybody's got their own thing. This apparently seems to be his. And the, the next scene, we're actually at the engagement party, which is at the soon-to-be condemned strip club, TGI. LGT, Vegas. Yeah, something like that. So they're at this, this soon-to-be condemned strip. And Kyle buys Chris and Pat a singular pair of lingerie as an engagement present, which is disturbing because he had to go to a store, pick this out, buy it, wrap it, and give it to him. You can maybe buy lingerie for your significant other. You can't go and buy it for another couple. <laughs> Yeah, that seems weird. Like, I think your wife would look really hot in this. If you could take a couple of pictures, that'd really help a guy out. Let me know when she's going to be wearing it. I'm going to, you know, lurk around in the bushes. You know how I like to look in your windows, right? You just give me a jingle jingle. Next time you two are going to conjugate the verb, give myself a little (laughs) looky-loo. Could you bring it back over to me after she wears it? Don't wash it. I like it. I really like how it smells after. Weirdo. Get the fuck out of here, man. (laughs) Pat and Chris are expressing their love for one another at this party, and Pat proceeds to spit all over Chris's face because Pat is a disgusting human being, unaware of how this vile behavior is perceived by all others in normal society. And I only note this because there's a callback later. Um, there's a lot of disturbing stuff that Pat does in this film that we don't talk about. Just, it's just, it's too numerous to, to, to count. At this party, Pat gets drunk and sings, dude looks like a lady at karaoke. Pause for laughs. Kyle and his wife then go back home and, uh, Stacy calls him out because he's, he's had too much to drink and he is clearly an angry drunk. She calls him out on being obsessed with Pat and says that she thinks their relationship is starting to fall apart, meaning, uh, Stacy and Kyle. And by the end of the scene, she's accused Accusing him of being in love with Pat. Did I miss anything there? That that is all accurate, and Kyle is starting to question that fact himself. You can kind of see him, you know, in love with Pat. That's 
that's crazy, but I'm so fascinated by Pat. So the next day, Kyle goes to visit Pat, and we learn that Pat has a diary on a computer with Pat's innermost thoughts. And uh, Pat is sitting at the table, and Kyle kind of kneels down to sneak a peek as Pat's typing in this, uh, you know, computer diary. And um, uh, Pat stands up and is still sort of down on his knees, and he comments on how huge the bulge is in Pat's pocket and uses the old, is that a banana in your pocket? Are you happy to see me? Pat pulls out a banana. It's just, it's just, it's just so fucking awful. At this point, I was much more curious about Kyle's sexuality compared to Pat's gender or, you know, sex. Kyle doesn't know what kind of parts Pat has. He's basically just looking for some heat in a hole. <laughs> right. There is a way to play this movie without it being just obsessive and dark and weird, where you have a character that that encounters Pat. Um, listeners, this is the fan fiction portion of the show. Where Kyle encounters Pat, is attracted to Pat, but it's not this, I'm putting pictures on the wall and that kind of thing. It's not this obsessive thing. It's much more a natural kind of attraction, and he wants to get to, to know Pat and that kind of thing. Like, you could play that for some laughs without it being completely gross, I think. You could make the movie about Kyle's kind of journey to acceptance of like I'm attracted to this person and it doesn't matter if they're a man or a woman I'm just attracted to this person the problem is that your central character is so unlikable and disgusting there is no reason for anyone to fall in love with them other than the psychological hostage scenario that I assume Chris is in Kyle tells Pat he sent a video um, from the the karaoke episode the night before to a TV show uh, to be on the air, but Kyle needs Pat to sign a release form. And so Pat's, you know, just over the moon. And as Pat fills it out where it says sex, Pat writes the word often and is like, oh, this is a joke. And then uh, Kyle asks for Pat's driver's license, but a dog's chewed it up. And then we go for a, a few other things where, you know, everything he's asking for, Pat doesn't have. And then he asks for a photo of Pat naked, which look, at this point, I was like, this dude's like a real weirdo. This went beyond, you know, just sort of unusual curiosity into the realm of you're a creep. If you're in Los Angeles, uh, ladies and gentlemen, and someone is offering you a job but needs a nude picture first, that's a warning sign. Just an FYI. Wait, what did you just say? <laughs> Again, we'll we'll keep this offline. We, we got a lot to talk about. This kind of ends with Pat, you know, saying, hey, I'm going to I'm going to be on TV and going out to cry it to the rafters. Because this movie is so very droll, Chad, in the same shot with Pat, framed in the upper left is a billboard for guest jeans. Yes, it's guests, and there's Pat. Uh-huh. 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 Did you put that together? <laughs> oh, fuck. And, like, my next note is, I never thought I would say this, but I wish I was watching Wayne's World too. <laughs> Yeah, so Pat's running around telling everybody that is within earshot about this upcoming television appearance. Pat breaks into Kathy Griffin's house at night to let her know that's elite. The, the authorities should have been called at that point. And Chris tries to talk Pat down uh, regarding this TV appearance, saying, you know, look, it's it's essentially a video show. And Chris is totally supportive, but grounded in reality. Pat is just a selfish asshole and responds the way a selfish asshole would. The TV show in question is called America's Creepiest People, which is a show that lets 
you know, you, the viewer, feel better about yourself by laughing at other people. Uh, on the show, they show, and, and on this this particular episode, um, Pat is seen singing karaoke, and she's singing the song uh, Freak Out. Kyle's wife, in the, it, you know, while all of this is airing, goes uh, to the locked door of Kyle's masturbatorium, I'm assuming, to see if he's okay. Right. And he's in there watching the show by himself, just, just, I guess, jacking off. And she says, like, she's worried about him because he's been in there for three days. Was that consecutive? And, and if it is, could you imagine the smell? Where's this guy shitting or pissing? Maybe he has a kitchen sink in there. I don't know. Just two liter bottles of Mountain Dew <laughs> that he is recycling through his, the Mr. Coffee of his body. Um, yeah, and th- that's the other thing is that the gag here, I suppose, is that Kyle is watching this this video of Pat doing karaoke and just cranking it left and right there is a way to tell a story of obsessive love and make it somewhat comedic but there's nothing funny to me at least about a guy just being so obsessed with a person that he just stares at pictures of them and jerks off that's basically silence of the lambs yeah except for maybe sharky as we noted that's what he did. And it turned out well for him. Right. He got the girl in the end. But in fairness, Sharky's Machine is, uh, you know, put this in quotes, a thriller. <laughs> Whereas this is supposed to be a comedy and sexual obsession plays much better in uh, a thriller scenario. There is a whole reason that there is an entire subgenre called erotic thrillers. Is that what this is? <laughs> it- it is a slight turn from it. Like, you could change about 15 lines in this script, and it would be Sharky's Machine too. <laughs> Did you notice that when Pat rushes in to watch the television show that Pat's been screaming about to everybody and is late to it being on TV? Gets there late to this, uh-huh. this own viewing, and then sees the performance and is pleased with it, because Pat's an idiot. Chris, it, we, we cut over and we see Chris at the strip club watching it on TV, and I'm going to say, Jim genuinely looks proud of Pat. I mean, there, there was like this moment of like, like, that's my boy or that's my girl or, you know, whatever. It was like, that's, you know, that's my better half and, and was happy about it, which I was like, that's kind of nice. Then we see Kathy Griffin and she's watching it and she looks like she's about to throw up in her mouth. There's uh Camille Paglia cameo. What the hell is going on there? Yeah, I assume they had one of her children. Uh, that's the only thing that makes any sense to me. She follows up on the look at these weird uh, shithead TV show, the video show, and is just like talking about Pat's gender or roles or something it's just what the hell are you doing in this movie well the the her line is pat explodes ideas of modern sexuality and it's like if only you know that's a way more interesting movie if it's about this character that is so charismatic that the gender doesn't matter. Like if Pat were so likable and charming that genders, like both genders, people of both genders were attracted to Pat and that was kind of the gag. That's Mango. <laughs> well, that, you know, objectively a better sketch. But I, I think that there is a way to make that the central conceit if, if Pat isn't horrible. And then the idea of like, yeah, I know I'm attracted to Pat. I'm just not sure if that makes me gay or not. And if it does, then I guess I'm just gay. Like, that's kind of funny, I think, maybe. It's not that, that even that's not funny. And that's definitely not something that that would that would have aged well. <laughs> in our in our next scene, Kyle starts hitting on Pat. He, he Kyle admits that he's falling in love with Pat and goes over to Pat's apartment and starts hitting on Pat and pops a cork off champagne like he's having an orgasm. And then he starts unbuttoning his clothes and Pat refuses his advances. And 
then Pat leaves and just goes down to the community pool where others from this, you know, whatever peeping Tom housing complex and just screams out, we have a celebrity in the building. It's me. You know what? Fuck you. You shithead. Pat's the worst. And did you notice uh, with the champagne cork, it was a total cartoon pop sound. Like there, there was nothing legit about that sound effect at all. There's a scene later where somebody throws a pair of eyeglasses and when they break, it sounds like somebody threw a window pane out and let it smashed on the street. I'm like, glasses don't sound like that when they break. Stupid. Yeah, I think this is a Wilhelm scream away from like a bad sound effect trifecta. Chris calls Pat and Chris lives in this apartment that looks like the inside of a tiki hut and there's a giant waterbed. There are multiple lava lamps and while Pat and Chris are on the phone, Kyle climbs down from a window to peek into Pat's window. Again, not an uncommon occurrence in this a housing complex and then pat closes the window and kyle falls and crashes and i'm sure down below a cat went meow you know when he hit the ground <laughs> right meanwhile the landlord is just watching all of this from an office with his door locked just don't let him get in here just smoking hash and polishing his sawed-off shotgun. Oh, speaking of smoking hash, Chad, Pat runs into the band Ween. Pat's walking down the street, and this orange van rolls up, and I'm immediately thinking I'm about to witness a hate crime. <laughs> Anytime a van rolls up and stops in front of you, you're you're going to be abducted or beaten. Yes, and if you are someone that somehow looks a little bit different or unusual or maybe questionably homosexual or just again not a binary in your sexuality what what is going on it's not as it turns out neo-nazis as one would suspect in today's climate it is uh the band ween who are famous for such songs as and 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 they saw pat on television so these stoned assholes asked Pat to play at their show. And immediately, this is another shift in the movie. For a while, it was about Pat and Chris and Pat finding a job. And then it turned into Kyle and the TV show thing. And now we're on to another thing where Pat uh, wants to be a celebrity. Um, so we immediately go from them saying, hey, man, you want to be on our show? And she says yes, and we find her backstage at the Ween show, and she's asking, like, did you get my axe? And they're like, yeah, yeah, it's on the fucking stage, weirdo. Do you think it would have been better if when Ween pulled up and said, hey, we want you to be a part of our concert, and then Pat jumps into the van, if the remaining, you know, 42 minutes of this film just shifted into uncomfortable torture porn with Ween just slowly filleting Pat for no reason other than you are a willing victim to our our deviant, horrible, personal, sexual, disgusting human behavior. Like what circle of hell can we create on earth that involves Pat? Um, Yeah, of course. I would prefer that movie. (laughs) I would love it if Laurence Olivier was drilling into a tooth. Like, is it safe? I don't know what you're talking about. Pat gets on stage with Ween and they're singing their big hit pork roll egg and cheese um i've i've never fucking heard of any ween songs <laughs> to your joke earlier and but the thing that's weird it's a woman singing the song it's not them which i don't know what the hell is going on and pat's playing a tuba just the whole it's just fucking weird it's like a dream that you had that someone's like uh-huh uh-huh all right, that's fucking bizarre. You also get to see Ween on stage and there's a close-up of their bare feet. And I'm like, eh, 
There's Tarantino. There's the Tarantino effect. Yeah, close up on bare feet. <laughs> Uma, Uma, what are you doing? Would you like to be in It's Pat? So we're backstage and, and Pat is at the this like after party and eats mushrooms and starts tripping until Ween tells them that they're just normal mushrooms. It's as funny as it sounds as I say it out loud. <laughs> Next scene, Stacy's pissed off at Kyle because he's cut out the photo uh, cut out a photo of Pat and then scotch taped it over her face in their their wedding photo. She wants a divorce, rightfully so. Next scene, Pat goes to see the band Ween, talking about, hey, when's our next performance? They're like, beat it, loser. And Pat screams out, you're nothing without me! Because Pat's an asshole. She goes from, I thought we were gonna go on tour! <laughs> And they were like, no, that's fucking crazy. You're a weirdo, and we don't want you around that much. And the one moment of some sympathy for the character is, which is immediately thrown away, but it's when she says, I'll do it for free. And they're like, yeah, sorry, it's just not on the table. Again, in a different movie, if, if anybody was paying attention, if anyone was at the wheel of this thing, then you lean into that. You say like, okay, as terrible as she is, she has this dream. And that dream being deferred is what motivates her character. But, I mean, none of it matters, Chad. It doesn't. Chris tries to comfort Pat. Pat's an ungrateful asshole who just wants fame and riches out of life. That's a quote! From Pat. Yeah, yes. And Chris actually rightly says, those are the pursuits of an empty soul. I like Chris. Yeah, and Pat responds, you're not being supportive. (laughs) And so for the second time in the movie, Chris breaks up with Pat. Good for Chris. Yeah, yeah. But again, in a very Icantina way, Chris can't stay away. (laughs) I did not, uh, I did not draw that analogy, but, uh, uh, now that you say it out loud, it makes even less sense. <laughs> I don't know who's who in that analogy. Let me work on that one. Well, I think Pat is clearly Ike, and Chris is the abuse spouse. I don't know. Pat was on stage performing. Well, Ike was on stage, too. He just wasn't front and center. Yeah. He's playing the tuba. Well, Chris isn't on stage. <laughs> All right. I'm not saying it's one-to-one, Chad. I'm saying it's close. So Pat has nightmares about seeing Chris in all these weird places, like showing up in cabbage and a fridge or something in the shower uh, as part of the shower head. And then Pat wakes up to record these dreams into this uh, computer diary, only to discover, dun-dun-dun, it's been stolen. So that's our movie now. So Pat is in the pursuit of this laptop like Pee-wee was in pursuit of the bike. So we've now pivoted the movie to a completely different purpose. But don't worry, it's going to change again later. So when she goes to Kyle, not because Pat thinks Kyle has stolen the laptop, which has her, you know, secret captain's logs on him. He's, uh, but but to get, like, comfort in a time of need. Kyle now has a Pat wig and glasses. This is the point where I stop understanding what this character is supposed to be. Because on the one hand, like, I get the notion of, like, oh, he's attracted to Pat and can't quite put his finger on it. But the process of becoming Pat as part of that is something where I'm like, I don't know what I'm supposed to feel about this. Other, than, It's not funny. It's just kind of scary, maybe? It doesn't make any sense, man. It, the, the, whole, the whole fucking thing doesn't make any sense. We now find out that the laptop is password protected. Pat gives Kyle a hint to the, the password and says, it's in the dictionary. Pat leaves and, and Kyle immediately grabs a dictionary and starts with the first word in it for like, you know, aardvark or whatever. And a question to you, did you immediately think that this was going to be the last word in the dictionary when you saw this setup? Because I did. No, I didn't make a guess, man. I didn't care. 
I even I wasn't even curious about it. I, at this point, I'm on the life raft. I'm just looking for the credits to roll. I'm not trying. No, we're, we've got the food rationed. We're out at sea. We're we're hoping for survival. Nobody's worrying about the details here. Kyle's wife leaves him for good, so she's gone. Good for you that you were able to to somehow jump to safety and get the hell out of this movie. Pat, who is not only annoying but is also incredibly racist, as we touched on earlier, <laughs> goes to this sketchy part of town and comes across some African-American and Hispanic men. And then Pat proceeds to ask them, have you stolen anything recently? Pat is definitely a Trump supporter. I, I know that in my heart. Uh-huh. And then these, you know, like racially profiled, you know, no goodniks, ask Pat if uh, I, one of them says, are you a brother or a sister? And Pat says, neither. I'm an only child. Which, that's the one joke in this movie that I was like, that's kind of funny. At least it's somewhat clever because you're you're giving a slightly different spin. It, yeah, it's probably the best of the dozens of Pat is going to answer in a way that does not reveal her, her gender identity. Then they, they start asking her what androgynous means. Or, you know, you're an androgynous, right? Pat's like, I'm totally androgynous. When they ask her finally, like, you know, are are you a man or a woman? Very pointedly, she just fucking runs. <laughs> Why would this character do that? I assume it's because she doesn't understand the word androgynous and is running home to look it up. <laughs> But I don't know, man. Which which Pat does. And in it, there's a definition, uh, a person having characteristics of a man or a woman. And then it literally shows a picture of Pat in the dictionary with a description that says, a plump person with short, black, curly hair and black rimmed glasses who you can't tell is a man or a woman. Pat then goes to get a makeover. I don't know why. And in this scene, it is a total waste of time because they cut Pat's hair differently, more masculine versus feminine. But at the end, Pat leaves with the exact same haircut. Except they shaved her head at one point. They shaved her head bald. And that is just glossed over. I assume that this new hair is actually a wig. <laughs> 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 so, funny hair so uh pat then goes to kathy griffin's radio station and just barges in and kathy griffin hosts what we now find out is this self-help love chat show pat while she's on the air she berates her to give her a job because pat says she set the clock on her vcr and then kathy griffin immediately calls security because that's what you would do if someone barged into your radio station while you're on the air and while Kathy Griffin's gone, the phone in the studio starts ringing and because, you know, Pat has no sense of social awareness, picks up the phone and, in you know, using that classic Pat charm is a completely rude asshole to everyone. And then apparently this is just all on the air because this isn't how a radio station would really operate. So she takes a couple of calls and then Tim Meadows shows up. We'll see you in a little bit, Mr. Meadows. Indeed. And he stops Kathy from stopping Pat. Then we cut to Pat on the phone with a caller saying, I'm thinking of killing myself. I've tried. I, I've, I'm contemplating a gun or pills and it's just terrifying. And Pat's like, have you thought about drowning? And you're just like, oh, God. Like, if I couldn't like this character any less, now she is just, we're just making a good old-fashioned suicide joke because there is nothing funnier, Chad, than the taking of someone's own life. <laughs> 
<laughs> I think uh, comedies like Ordinary People, uh, any of your classic suicide comedies will tell you. The End, another great suicide classic. In the phone call Pat has with this person who's contemplating suicide, Pat ends the conversation by saying, Quit calling here! And just hangs up. God, I hate that character so much. So Tim Meadows immediately fires Kathy Griffin and uh, gives Pat uh, the job as being sort of this Dr. Laura Schlesinger character. So that's what the movie is about now, that Pat is going to be an on-air personality. Uh-huh. After getting this job, Pat just busts into Kathy Griffin's apartment as Pat is wont to do to inform uh, Kathy that Pat now has her old job. And Kathy Griffin is just sitting there crying and chain-smoking and drinking heavily actions that are acceptable for anyone who is appearing in this film. Yeah, I mean, her character just lost a job, and the fact that Pat is so oblivious to, in theory, her best friend, that Pat is so much more concerned with her own success that this, you know, pseudo-friendship, uh, a.k.a. breaking and entering that she has with <laughs> Kathy Griffin is completely sidelined. I mean, it just, it reemphasizes the fact that, that Pat is essentially a sociopath who does not feel empathy or compassion for those around her. I agree with all of that. Especially the part when you said this movie is really shitty. So then we cut to Kyle and he's still trying to crack this password challenge and he's up to the R's and the word we hear from him is ramrod and you know I'm sure they spent some time trying to determine what's the funniest word to have him say. It should be noted at this point there is now a ventriloquist dummy that he has dressed up to look like Pat in his masturbatorium and there's just trash everywhere and my question for you is how often is he having sex with that doll? I don't know how often is all the time <laughs> i mean i think this scene takes place in the 45 seconds where his dick is not shoved into that ventriloquist dummy i was thinking is often enough to allow the chafing to heal so that there's not chronic bleeding i think he's past that i think it, you know there's a there's a bit of a spiritual side to it like self-flagellation of the monks there's pleasure in the pain kyle does not have a, a normal sexual component to his character because it's not as if he's just into a weird thing or has this attraction to someone outside of gender norms or whatever it is. He has this obsessive personality where if he cannot possess someone, he has to become them. Yeah, that's weird. Right. Right. <laughs> so we cut back to Pat in the studio and this woman calls up and says she's contracted a horrible disease and has uh, just a few months to live. To which Pat says, dial 1-800-wah-wah-wah-wah. And considering when this came out, my guess is that she probably had, what, AIDS? So that's compassionate. I mean, I, I don't think it matters what your terminal disease is. I think if uh, you call a radio show for some sort of help, it, you know, the onus is on the host to at least not insult you. I guess. The next calls from from Kyle, who says that he likes to dress up as his androgynous neighbor. And then Pat just hangs up on him, which, look, that is a call-in radio show's dream call. Like, you milk that for at least 45 minutes. You don't hang up on that. Right. That's a real stay-on-the-line caller. We've got to take a break. <laughs> we'll be back with more Kyle. Kyle and Chiffon on the line. Um, you're absolutely right. But it just goes to show that Pat is not only a narcissist uh, sociopath but is also bad at her job 
Well, based on Tim Meadows' flight of fancy as it comes to hiring new people, I'm surprised he's not getting on the phone offering this person Pat's job. Like, hey, you sound like a really, you know, unusual personality. Want to come on the air? I'll give you a show. Right. It's it's one of those situations where you, it, like, it's more of a shock jock kind of thing, only with someone who isn't capable of long-term planning or running gags or anything like that. It's just calling somebody to, or if you're listening to this radio station, you're just listening to people call someone who is going to be rude to them. It's the equivalent of like if you tied the the lines to 911 to the jerky boys. <laughs> you know, where it's like my house is on fire. Hey, there's sizzle chest. Sounds like you need a bucket. My children are inside. I'll bring all my shoes and my glasses so I'll have them then. <laughs> right. Also a better movie. <laughs> It's a much better movie. Chris comes to visit Pat at the apartment. Chris is leaving for a year-long trip to Tibet. Pat is an asshole about responding to this. We now see Kyle with the ventriloquist puppet on his lap as he's typing in passwords using the puppet's hands, which is weirder than that sounds. And he gets to the last word in the dictionary and it works. And then he starts kissing the doll. Again, this is all of this is stuff that I assume happens all the time. And um, he turns his attention to these boring ramblings from... The the diary so he's really getting into reading it and then we see chris who is packing for this long trip and while the packing is going on uh, goes over to spritz a plant somehow turns the bottle backwards and sprays water in i guess what chris's mouth or whatever on the face which reminds chris of when pat you know hacked snot and boogers during their engagement so that's kind of romantic yeah there there's nothing better than a love story that involves people spitting on each other chris breaks down and calls pat's show and is confessing like, you know, hey, there was this person that I loved and, you know, I, I, I don't know if I should go because things have changed for that person and they're in a stable job now. And, of course, because Pat is a, a narcissistic asshole, never associates what Chris is saying with Pat's own life. Pat's advice is... You know, you should hit the road. Get away from that loser. That's good advice. A hundred percent. She is absolutely correct about that. Then we get the one bit, the one ray of light for me in this whole movie is there's a pretty good physical gag from Dave Foley where he is trying to close an overstuffed suitcase on top of a waterbed. It's not great, but it's better than anything else in this movie. It's actually a comic actor doing a comic thing. Then we go back to Kyle, who is still reading the diary, which is still just as vague as all the other shit in Pat's life. There's just nothing definitive about Pat's gender. Kyle also is being shot like a Batman villain here, where there's kind of a Dutch angle going on. He's truly becoming the villain of the film, because as you know, Chad, this movie has been all about his obsession with Pat, and in no way is a man mess about jobs and relationships <laughs> he goes into the radio station to tell pat that he's the one who has the diary the voice he uses to hide his identity he sounds like bella lugosi he's like pat i have your diary Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> right. He does say, meet me at Ripley's Auditorium. So Pat goes down to meet him at the auditorium. And as Pat walks into the building, knocks a guy out of the way and just storms in. 
Because Pat is such an asshole. This cannot be an accident that this is so shitty. There's no way you make these choices and you don't know what the hell you're doing. I do wonder if they thought the fact that this character is so brash and unlikable, that's what's funny about the character. But it turns out it just makes the character brash and unlikable and (laughs) and completely unfunny. So Pat rolls into the auditorium, which is this mirror uh, maze. And there are Pats reflected everywhere. You've seen this countless times before. But one thing you haven't seen is uh, Kyle is there and he's now dressed up as Pat. So we have a whole lot of Pats. Some that look like, you know, regular size Pat and some of them that look like Kyle size Pat. Pat doesn't recognize Kyle wearing the same wig and glasses that he wore earlier. Pat is either just too stupid or too obnoxious to, to realize what the hell's going on. Kyle then tells Pat to take off all of Pat's clothes. And he says that they're a jigsaw puzzle that needs to know how they fit together at this point i'm like is this just to determine if he needs to be on his front or his back or his knees or inverted or who the hell knows what like what are you gonna get from seeing this person nude you just want to know if missionaries on the table right am i going diving on the front end am i going to be taking it in the bottom uh potentially i would assume that pat would not be the top here but you never know well in typical pat fashion pat just runs off and then the music here becomes full-on peewee's big adventure there's a lot you know that and pat runs up to the roof of the building kyle is in pursuit of pat and they make their way into the rafters of a concert venue and they're up in the light rigging and down below who is playing but your favorite band and mine uh wan ween 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 yeah yeah Playing, they're, they're playing their big head. Yes. So Kyle follows Pat out onto the light rigging and we get to the end of the rigging and then Pat falls off the rigging and uh, while falling gets caught on this giant uh, hook. It's like a Rocky style beef hook that is there for no good reason. It rips the pants off of Pat, snags Pat on the back of the shirt where a stage hand bumps against a lever that lowers Pat down so that Pat is hanging completely nude from the waist down above the band wing. Yeah, right. Uh-huh. That was in the script, right? Yeah. Somebody wrote, Pat now exposes Pat self to the entire crowd, naked uh, as, as the day is long, suspended in midair above whatever band will do this movie. And then the audience of the Ween concert stares back in shock, as they should, then immediately cheers in triumphant support, as they shouldn't. Not so fast, Chad. I think I've solved uh, a couple of riddles here one that would imply that pat is most definitely a male and the reason they're applauding is because pat has a real horse dick (laughs) which i would applaud too maybe it's the opposite maybe pat is a woman and her vagina just goes from taint to tits (laughs) <laughs> like some kind of nightbreed monster. All right. I don't know. I mean, do you applaud that? I think that I think that would just be stunned silence for even longer. You know. I don't know. <laughs> also, I would say that maybe this is just a male centric view, and I apologize for that. I am more likely to believe in applause for a big dick. <laughs> 
because I've seen, you know, a fair number of vaginas in my life. At no point have I ever thought like, you know what? Everybody, let's give this vagina a hand. So you think that the response that was exhibited the friends in Bachelor Party when they saw Nick the Dick's dick is just turned up to 11 when Uh this audience sees a huge, to use your words, horse cock on this dangling, chubby, short-haired, bespeckled individual. Yeah, where they're like, oh, he's got an enormous schwanstucker, you know. (laughs) (laughs) So Kyle's up in the rafters. He wants to rush down to see, you know, what's doing between Pat's legs, but security grabs him and he gets the boot. We then cut to one of the two ween boys. They're backstage with Pat and they're stitching up Pat's clothes that got ripped off. Pat realizes that the limelight is no place place to be so pat runs off to go find chris who is leaving on a ship to go on this uh year-long journey but pat doesn't go straight to the dock pat first goes to the hollywood walk of fame and then goes back to that skanky titty bar then goes to like random oil fields around california and then the beach and then eventually shows up at the dock where chris is getting onto the ship pat bullies up to the front of the line because it's pat and uh shouts at chris i just realized you need me this character has been so terribly behaved through the entire film like whether it's breaking laws or just stepping all over people's emotions or whatever it is stealing their jobs breaking into their homes all that stuff we have what three four minutes left in the movie and now the moment of redemption has come for this character and even then pat steps on his own giant cock in the process of apologizing and it takes pat a second to get around to actually apologizing to Chris and even then it's like one line and done and it's like that's bullshit just if this movie wants me to like this character even a little bit by the end of it you gotta go a little bit further than I guess I learned to apologize it's like no stop all the shit you have to apologize for Pat and Chris kiss they make up the next scene they're getting married at some temple in that voiceover thing that they kind of sort of use when they need it Pat quotes Plato and says some bullshit about being true to yourself and who you are and then we roll credits and the last thing we hear is Kathy Griffin talking with Kyle and Kathy says that Kyle is a transvestite to which Kyle says he likes to dress as a woman and a man and that he always fantasizes about having sex with the same person and then that's it the end roll the rest of credits yeah and and so I guess the point of the movie is that no matter who you are that what's important is passing judgment on Kyle there's a lot of troubling things about you know if if you're looking at this movie through the prism of it being respectful of like LGBT issues and it's not I mean it's a a terrible movie that feels homophobic panicked about anyone that is not immediately identifiable in terms of of gender norms but that aside the end of this movie lands in a place where Kyle has somehow become a cross-dresser because of his, his obsession with Pat so let's let's make fun of that for a second you're just like I don't understand where this movie's heart is I don't know who I'm supposed to root for I don't know what lesson I'm supposed to learn from this movie I hate to keep comparing this movie to Superstar but Superstar is a movie that does exactly what this movie does only it does it all right where 
you set up your characters. Most of them are interesting and funny. You have a through line for the character. You know exactly what Mary Catherine Gallagher wants. At a certain point in the film, what she wants changes, but it changes because of what she has learned over the course of the film. And it ends with her in a place where she sort of realizes her dreams, but also understands that what she originally wanted was less important than the people around her. And all of that stuff works because it's thematically consistent. The character does evolve. And where you land with the character is at a place where they have learned something and they express what they've learned in a reasonably clear way. Whereas this is just this big amorphous mass of who knows what the fuck is the point of any of it. And that's kind of my problem with it is at the end of the day, despite all the, the fact that it's not funny, that the primary character is terrible, aside from all of that... What was the point? What was the point of any of it? What was I supposed to get out of this movie? I go back to my original theory on this, that they were contractually obligated to make this film. And they just said, all right, we'll make it. And it's going to be awful. And I think that's the point of it. I think the fact that this is so colossally shitty was the point. And just nobody can own up to that. Because maybe there's some clause in there, you know, like on page, you know, 680 of the hilariously long contract they signed. It says, you know, if you purposely make a shitty movie, you got to pay back all the 218 people who saw it in the theater or something. Right. It's some sealed document that gets released when Julia Sweeney passes away. And it like, there's this whole 20 page treatise on here's why we made it's Pat. So unbelievably unwatchable. I don't know, man. It's, it's bad. I yeah. cannot recommend anyone to, to ever see this, even as a joke. I mean, other, I know there's a lot of other bad movies, you know, Troll 2 or The Room. Plan 9 or Miami Connection or something like that. Yeah. This is none of that. This is just a movie that is just so shitty that it's head-scratchingly bad. Whenever I see movies on Rotten Tomatoes that have a 0% score, like some of the ones I mentioned in the the intro or, you know, Jaws, The Revenge, Staying Alive, the sequel to Saturday Night Fever. I've seen both of those and they're really bad. But there are parts of those movies that you can either enjoy for their badness. This is not that at all it's just terrible yeah it's having the main character of a movie screech at you for the better part of 90 minutes and it's not funny so that's not carrying you through like you're not it's not one of those movies where it's like "Eh, i gotta laugh every 10 15 minutes and it wasn't great but at least there were funny things in it it's it's not that it's it's really bad like i said it's just got a terrible main character and the fact that the character of pat is in every single scene in this movie. It's just the worst. You know, I, like I said, I was watching it and really just kind of marveled at the fact that this is so, to your point, maybe you're right. It, it seems so intentionally off-putting as a movie that it's just daring you to find something to like about it. <laughs> that was on the poster. It's Pat. We dare you to find something you like about this movie. <laughs> Yeah, that would be uh, one of the more honest ad campaigns for any any film ever. So that's It's Pat. I'm glad that's uh, slowly disappearing in the rearview mirror. For our fourth episode in this season, I believe that we are going to do a little bit of self-reflection with Stuart Smalley as Stuart saves his family. Yeah, another character that probably should never have been turned into a feature-length film. But uh, we get to talk about... Uh, 
uh, Al Franken a little bit, and I, I find him an endlessly fascinating character. So it just occurred to me now that uh, Al Franken, you know, writer and star of Stewart Saves His Family, um, is a disgraced politician now. <laughs> so that'll be fun. <laughs> It'll definitely be more fun than this particular film. So I think we can both agree that we share at least one big laugh from this movie, and that's way more than it's Pat can claim. Here, here. I, I think that that is absolutely true. So come back, join us for episode four. We guarantee that it will be better than it's Pat. Uh, we look forward to discussing that in the next episode. All right. 